I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. Typical Easter service revolves around the resurrection, and I don't want to neglect that this morning. It's an important part of who we are as a church. It's an important part of who we are as a people. But I want to take a look at a, an aspect of the resurrection that sometimes is overlooked and maybe isn't given the attention it needs. This morning we're going to talk about the ascension. That's what this passage is about, the ascending of Christ into heaven after his resurrection. And it, it is a, it's an important part of your salvation if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's an important part of your relationship with our Father in heaven. If you came here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's an important factor in how you might develop that relationship. So what I want you to remember of all the things we have to share this morning is that the ascension is vitally important to you, whoever you are. The ascension is vitally important to you personally. Uh, it should be important to us corporately as well. The setting of Acts kind of happens right there at the end of the Gospels. I mean, Luke chapter 24 is the, the initial setting of it where Jesus is talking to his disciples. There's a number of interactions. There's a little bit of repetition between the end of Luke 24 and Acts 1, 1 through 11. But we also see the setting in the passage that Conrad read a little bit earlier out of John uh, chapter, what was that, chapter 20, where Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb and she sees that Jesus is risen and they have a few words and she clings to him. And he says to her, he says, don't cling to me, I have not yet ascended to the Father. Here's what he tells her. He says, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And what Jesus is telling Mary, he's, saying, he's not saying, don't touch me, uh, because a little bit later on, they will get a chance to touch Jesus and, and to hear him and to sit down and have a meal with him. What he's trying to tell Mary is, look, the process isn't done yet. Don't cling to this moment. Don't, don't think that this is it. Yes, the resurrection has occurred. Yes, that is vitally important to our understanding of who Christ is. But the process that we're going through still has another step, and it's an important step, and it has to happen if you understand who I am. Th this main event that we're talking about, the end of this process, is in Acts chapter 1, 1 through 11. And in this passage, we're going to see three magnificent displays of divinity. Of, of what it is to be God. We're going to see divine proof. We're going to see divine proof of the resurrection in verses 1 through 3. We will see divine power coming by virtue of the Holy Spirit in verses 4 through 8. And we will see a divine promise in verses 9 through 11. So let's just walk through this passage and see what God has for us this morning. Let's take a look at this divine proof. The beginning of Acts, chapter verse 1, says, In the first book... O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, the first book mentioned here is the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. They were originally one volume. They've been divided up into two because essentially they tell two different stories. The, book, the Gospel of Luke talks about the life and ministry of Christ. The book of Acts talks about the early formation of the church. And what it's really about is the impact 
that Christ and his resurrection has on that first century church. It's a chronology that runs through about 60 AD for the first century. Luke wrote both volumes. He starts out this second half of it to, to Theophilus. Now, who is Theophilus? We don't know. We don't know who Theophilus is. There are a lot of there are a lot of conjecture about it. Some people think maybe Theophilus was a saved friend. Some people think maybe Theophilus was somebody that Luke was witnessing to. Some people think that Theophilus indicated some kind of office, some sort of authority that maybe Luke was writing to a leader of the church or a leader of the community or something. But the truth of the matter is, we don't really know who Theophilus is. What's important is what Luke has to tell Theophilus. And it's a continuation of the Gospel of Luke, where we find all of Jesus' teachings and all of his practices. And at the end of Luke, he tells his followers, essentially, that they are to continue doing what he has taught them and what he has practiced. So he says, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach in that first book until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to, to the apostles whom he had chosen. Well, what's he talking about? What command is he talking about? That happens right at the end of Luke chapter 24 in verse 49, where he tells them to go and to wait. To wait until they are clothed with power on high. Now, he's not going to just leave them hanging there. Uh, we're going to find out what all this means. But he's telling them to wait, to be patient. In verse 3, it says, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, if we were to go through the four Gospels and look at all of the small groups of people that Jesus manifested himself to after the resurrection, we would find there were, there, there were at least 12 groups. But if you read Paul and you take a look at 1 Corinthians 15, you find out that Jesus appeared to over 500 people. Now, we know that's a big crowd, but we've got to think with Jewish minds here. Because when the Jewish minds hear about 500 people, what they're thinking is, that's a whole lot of people. They're not necessarily assigning a number to it. They're saying, that is a very large crowd. It's literally a multitude. So he shows himself to a multitude of people. And the proof of the resurrection, the proof of those who saw him tortured, who saw him crucified, the proof of those who know that the dead body was put in a tomb is the testimony of those who saw him. And it's not just a little group of people. It's not a, a, a conspiratory thing. It's not that they've gotten together and said, okay, we're just going to say these things right here. It's a multitude of people. So we have tangible proof that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And that's what Luke starts out with here, proof that he's arisen. And that moves us into the power that we're talking about. So verse 4 says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. Now again, if you look at Luke, if you look at Matthew, you find out that there's great joy over the resurrection. Uh, they're excited about it. They don't quite know how to process all this. There's some danger in being a follower of his. The leader of their movement has just been executed. And they know that as soon as people find out that they're part of the movement, that they may suffer the same fate. 
but they're excited because the execution didn't hold. He rose up from the dead. He was resurrected miraculously by his father in heaven. So there's a tension there. There's an excitement. To, what do we do about this? What, what, what's our next step? Jesus is risen, and Jesus' instructions are to wait. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. What promise? And, and in verse 5, he says, for John, baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, let's talk about this for just a second. John did baptism with water. When we think about John's baptism, we think about the sacrament of baptism. Many of you have seen it. There's uh, water somewhere. It might be a river. It might be a swimming pool. It might be a baptismal font. Somebody stands in the font with a pastor or a leader, and they give their testimony, and they get dunked under the water. Maybe in some churches they get sprinkled. I, I don't think the mode is as important as some people think it is. But there's a representation of being part of the church, a representation of a personal testimony of having surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. So when we hear baptize, most of us think about that sacrament. That's not what the first century Jews would have heard. When they heard the word baptizo, which is a Greek word for baptize, they, they would have a mental image of immersion. And it, it's not just dunking something. That their mental image would be something akin to somebody jumping off a dock and being totally engulfed by the water, being totally overwhelmed by the water. What we hear here is that John baptized with water, but these people are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They're going to be totally immersed in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to permeate every fiber of their being. Now, there's a lot of teaching that goes, goes on about the baptism in the Spirit, but we're talking about an initial baptism that's going to come upon these people that is going to enable them to do what Jesus has called them to do. And nothing like this has ever happened in the history of mankind up until this moment. Up until this moment, the Holy Spirit has been an external force working on the pillars of the Old Testament. But something else is going to happen here. Verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? You see, this immersion in the spirit was going to bring a change upon these people. There was going to be a regeneration. Scripture tells us they were going to get new lives. They were going to get new hearts. They were going to be formed into new creatures. That had not happened to these people yet. And this question they have is proof that it hasn't happened yet because they don't understand what's going on with the kingdom. Jesus has been resurrected. They have some hope with that. They're kind of excited, and they turn to Jesus and say, is this it? Is this what we've been waiting 4,000 years for? Are you going to redeem your people? Are you going to set us up on high? Are you going to push the Romans out of Jerusalem and show everybody who's really in charge? Do we get to be part of the kingdom now? Do we get to be part of your reign? Do we get all the benefits that the whole world will know that we are the children of God? So that inner transformation hasn't taken place yet. They still have their eyes set on their own desires and their own goals. Say, what time will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And his answer surprises them, I'm sure. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons 
that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He says, no one knows that time. Again, if we look at the Gospels, we find out that even some, through some supernatural miracle, even the Son doesn't know the time. And what Jesus is saying is no one knows this except God. And what he's telling them is that's not what this is about. That's not what this moment is about. And we know that because look what comes next. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, I like that concept. I like the idea that I'm going to receive power, don't you? We all want power. The question is what do we want power to do? See, and the question the disciples asked revealed that they wanted power for worldly gain. They wanted esteem. They wanted respect. They wanted victory over the Romans. Jesus says, that's not what this is about. What this is about is I'm going to leave and send power to you. And look what the power is for. It's for political influence. Isn't that what it says? Oh, no, I'm sorry. It says, and you will be my witnesses. The power will be to be witnesses for Christ. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The power would come to help them to be witnesses. And as we read on in Acts, we will find out that that power will begin to change the world. It will begin to impact all the people around them. This wasn't about the end times. This wasn't some eschatological thinking that, you know, we're in the millennium and, you know, all these things that we see in Revelation is going to happen. The power was for them to live in the calling that he had placed upon them. Now, Jesus knows that that can be hard. He knows that we're all human beings. He knows that those disciples are human beings. He just watched them abandon him when he got arrested. He knows their weaknesses. And he knows that without some help, they're not going to be very good witnesses and testimony to who who he is. So he's going to send the Holy Spirit. The power and the presence of the Holy Spirit will enable them to be the witnesses that they're called to be. They're not left on their own. They don't have to make it up. All they have to do is follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And the incredible thing that's going to happen is as he sends his Holy Spirit, as I said, the Holy Spirit has been an external influence on the people of God up until this moment. Now the Holy Spirit is going to be an indwelling presence in the people of God. It's not going to be a whisper in the ear. It's going to be a move of the heart. So Jesus is going to live in the heart The Holy Spirit is going to work in and through them. And we know that's true because he leaves them with a divine promise. Verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. I I love this moment in scripture. (laughs) Uh, It it doesn't tell us a lot, but I, I just want you to imagine that you were there. The disciples are walking along the road with Jesus. He's saying, you're going to receive power. You're going to be my witnesses. Here's what I'm calling you to do. Don't worry, you've got to do it on your own. I'm sending the Holy Spirit to help you out. He's going to, he's going to be the power behind all this. And, and in the middle of all that, the, the disciples are trying to absorb the resurrection. 
they're trying to figure out how, how did this happen. They know something supernatural is going on. They, they know that some unique event in the history of all of mankind is occurring right before their eyes. And as Jesus is talking to them, as he's teaching them, he lifts up in the air and floats away. I, you know what happened. They're looking at each other going, what was that? Where did he go? I thought he was here with us. And, and they're looking up. Where, and I, I have the same question. I, I, I mean, if you stop to think about it, where did he go? I mean, they had a, a, a less full understanding of what was up in the cosmos than we do, didn't we? I mean, we, we know a lot more about what they did about the moon and what's beyond the moon and so on and so forth. And so I see Jesus rising up in the air, and my, where where did he go? The other side of the moon? Where where, where did he ascend to? And I, I don't know if there's any clear answer to that. Uh, scripture tells us he ascended to heaven and sat down on the right hand of the Father. But these disciples are sitting there going, what just happened? And wow. And at that moment, Two angels appear, and look what happens. And while they were gazing into the heavens, he went, and behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Now, we know they're angels because the scriptural symbol for angelic heavenly beings are these white robes. They're radiant white robes, okay? So Christ has left, and that kind of leaves them with a challenge because now they've got all this work to do, and they're not quite sure how it's going to get done. And they also know that the work that they're called to do could result in some pretty heavy persecution for them personally, certainly for the church in general. And in verse 11, the angel said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the angels say, Why are you looking up in the sky? I mean, literally what they're saying is, did you hear anything he said? He gave you your marching orders. He said to go and wait, to go in the city and wait. Don't worry about where he went. Be ready for when he comes back. He told you he's coming back. Now listen, that promise can ring a little bit empty if we don't know the full counsel of Scripture. If you know the Old Testament, you know that the promises of God and the prophecies of God are uncanny in their accuracy in the way they're filled. The Jews had 2,000 years of promise after promise and prophecy after prophecy that was fulfilled. So it's not just a promise to them, it's a guarantee. By now, they know the character and nature of God. They don't understand the full character and nature of God, but they know enough to know that if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and has given glory to his Father for it and said he's coming back, he's coming back. But he had given them marching orders. And the angels are like, why are you standing there looking at the sky? He told you to go to the city and wait. He only, not only told you what to do, but he told you he's going to give you the power to do it. And don't worry about how long you have to do it because he's coming back. Now we read Paul, we find out he's going to come back unexpectedly. In the wink of an eye, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as well. And then when he comes back, it'll be with a shout and with the blowing of a trumpet. 
I don't know what kind of trumpet it is. I'm pretty sure it's not the one Louis Armstrong wore, blew. Might be a shofar. I don't even know if it's a real trumpet. I don't know what the shout sounds like. There's a debate over who's going to hear it. I think everybody's going to hear the shout because by the time you hear the shout, it's too late. He's back. So there's going to be an annunciation and there's going to be heavenly music. And it's going to be glorious. But he is coming back. So that's what we have to hold on to. If we look at the parable of the ten virgins in, in Matthew chapter 25, we find out that we need to be ready. We need to be ready for the return. We need to live in an expectancy that he's coming back. In our, in our statement of faith, we talk about his imminent return, which means that he can come back at any minute. There's nothing that needs to be done before he can come back. He can come back right now. Meanwhile, he's told us what to do. He's given us the power and the capability to do it. And he's promised to return to take us home. So we see these displays of divinity. We see the proof. A multitude of witnesses saw him after he was put in the tomb. We see the power it comes through the presence of the Holy Spirit, enabling us to do all we have been called to do. But Jesus had to leave in order for that power to be sent. I'll explain why in just a moment. And we've seen the promise that he'll return to take us home. Here's why the ascension is so important. God's plan of redemption God's plan after everything fell apart in the garden. His plan for you and me was to reconcile us to himself. Now, again, if we read our Old Testament, we find out that we can't be in the presence of God because he is perfectly holy and pure. That if we would come directly into the presence of God, we would die. So, God shows us through the Old Testament that there can be a mediator between me and God that can bring me into his presence. Abraham was a mediator. Moses was a mediator. At times, David was a mediator. Now, they were imperfect. They weren't perfect. And God was just showing us those things so that we could prepare ourselves for the ultimate mediator that would bring us into the presence of God once and forever. And that was his only son, Jesus Christ. He came, he lived a perfect, spotless, sinless life, and he sacrificed that life. Now, that's a pattern we see in the Old Testament again. Sacrifices were made for the atonement of sin. That was just a shadow, a pattern of what Jesus Christ would do. Jesus gave up his life on the cross, not for us, but in our place. Why is that necessary? Because every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And our sin prohibits us from coming into his presence. So Jesus sacrificed his life. The resurrection is important because it shows us that God has power over sin and death so that we can trust the things that he says. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's the only way, truth, and life. And God has already proven that by raising him from the dead. So he becomes our mediator. So when Jesus ascends, 
physically into heaven, that body that floated up into the sky was not a spirit. That was a body that they had touched, that they had sat and had meals with, that they had talked to. When he ascends into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, and we talk about having a relationship with Jesus Christ, we're having a relationship with a real human being, not a concept, not a spiritual notion. I, I don't understand how it works, but he's there. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's the mediator. Now, he's called us to be his witnesses. He's called us to be a holy people. We can't do that on our own. So as Jesus ascended, he sends the Holy Spirit to live in us and enable us to be those witnesses, enable us to walk a holy life, not perfect. We won't be perfect until we get there, but the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit draws us towards Jesus Christ who mediates us and brings us into the presence of the Father. We become one with him, we become pure and holy, and we all become one. So you see why the ascension is important to those of us who believe, to those of us who understand our salvation. These are the nuts and bolts of our salvation. These are the nuts and bolts that bring us into an attitude of sanctification where we want to be closer to the Father. We want to be more perfect than we are, okay? Now, if you came in here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, it's even more important because he's coming back. There's going to be a shout and some music, and at that point, he's going to want to know who believes in him and who doesn't because only those who believe in him can become holy enough to be united with the Father. That's why he's going to gather his church together. And because all of us have sinned, because all of us are imperfect, because all of us have dropped the ball somewhere along the line, we are ineligible to be in the presence of the Father. But the God, the God that we know, the God who loves us, the God who has mercy on us, has provided a way for us to go back into his presence, and that is through Jesus Christ. So if I'm talking to you right now and there's a tug in your heart that says, you know what, this is pretty hard for me to believe, but there might be something here. I've always wondered how this worked. I do have a desire, but I've never felt worthy. I've never felt obligated. If there's anything moving in your heart right now, that is the Holy Spirit drawing you to the Father. How do we get there? Scripture is very clear. It's, it's not overly complicated. We can over-spiritualize this, but we don't have to because Scripture tells us all we have to do is confess that we're sinners. Repent from it. Turn away from the sin and admit that he's the only son of God and we'll have eternal life. And when that moment comes, when we hear the annunciation and when we hear the trumpet, we'll go with him. The alternative isn't very pleasant. So as you ponder these things, remember, the ascension was part of God's plan of redemption. Without the ascension, we don't have the sending of the Holy Spirit, and we're left to our own devices. And the ascension, brothers and sisters, is the rest of the story. It's the rest of the story of God's plan of redemption. It's an example of God's mercy and his grace and his love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for the fullness of the counsel of your word. We thank you for this incredible plan of redemption that is just beyond imagination, that you would come down in the form of your son and suffer and bleed 
and die for us that we might be reconciled to you. We thank you for paying the price we couldn't pay. We thank you for taking our place on the cross. And we thank you for your grace and your mercy, which are benefits to us that are beyond imagination. We pray on this Easter day, Father, that we would have a deeper appreciation for the gift you give us in your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.